Hello and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you are tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS or Communities for Just Schools. Today on Schoolhouse, we will be talking about the growing movement to make student, parent, teacher voice the essential center from which public education grows. I am so excited to welcome today Karan Blair, Director of the Alliance to Reclaim Our Schools in Chicago, Neva Walker, Executive Director of Coleman Advocates in the Bay Area in California, and Billy Easton and Zakia Ansari, Executive Director and Advocacy Director, respectively, of the Alliance for Quality Education of New York. Welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Karan, I want to start with you. What is the Alliance to Reclaim Our Schools, your organization, and what is this movement to reclaim our schools about? So the Alliance to Reclaim Our Schools is this alliance between 10 national organizations that represent teachers, parents, and students. Together, uh, we total about 7 million people. And what brings us together is the goal of reclaiming and in some places claiming the promise of good quality public education and schools in all of our neighborhoods. Our work is rooted in not only a demand for quality schools, but also a call for racial justice. For us, we see education justice as equal to racial justice because black and brown children and their communities have not historically received the quality education that we know we can offer them. It should also be noted that the Alliance came together about three years ago, but the movement, the fight for education justice, has been one that has been ongoing for some time now. And this alliance represents merely the culmination of decades of work of all the groups at the table. So we're happy to be here and happy to be a part of this work. Neva Karan says this education justice movement has been ongoing, and you've been a critical part of that with Coleman Advocates. What is a walk-in and what has that been successful at doing? So we had a national day last Thursday, October 6th, with Arrows and bringing together youth, teachers, students, community folks from across the country. You know, folks are really familiar with walkouts, and so sometimes we have to walk out of a workplace or walk out of schools. This time we wanted to say we were walking in and taking back our schools, and so we were part of some different sites in San Francisco supporting walk-ins in our schools and making sure that we send a message not just to the school site, but to our community, just like what Karan was saying, that this quality education, racial justice, and most importantly, the schools belong as much to the teachers as they do to parents and young people. Zakia and Billy, you know, people are familiar with protest and marching And you all are marching and walking with a purpose right now. We are lucky to have you as you are literally walking to Albany, New York. Tell people what you're walking for, where you're walking from, and why. This is Billy Easton. I'm the executive director of the Alliance for Quality Education. And I'm walking through Kisaki, New York on a windy, cool day. 
Well, we're walking from New York City to Albany, 150 miles. Right now, we're 126 miles into it, so uh, you know, one more day after the day, and we'll make it. And the reason we're walking is because New York State has one of the most unfair school funding systems in the country. There's a gap between rich and poor students in spending of $10,000 per pupil. This closely tracks uh, the racial inequality uh, in, in the state as well. And we're demanding the state pay money. Now, we're not just demanding they pay some money. We're demanding they pay the $3.9 billion that's owed to our schools pursuant to a court order called the Campaign for Physical Equity. And uh, in fact, what we're doing this interview today is the 10th anniversary of that trial it's called the Campaign for Physical Equity. And we'll be arriving tomorrow. There's uh, about 20 of us walking the whole way. And there'll be more uh, joining us for the last day of the walk, uh, another 30 or so. And then about 100 people there to greet us when we arrive. And we'll have a rally. And then we're going to go and deliver invoices to the governor to demand that they pay the money to go to the school. And Zakia, I've been able to see your Facebook Live feed. You said your feet are hurting. <laughs> Tell us about the experience. What was very poignant to me and really stuck with me is Kalan's quote around educational justice being racial justice. And the campaign for fiscal equity dollars were exactly that's what they were about. They were supposed to go to the neediest of the neediest students in New York City and New York State. And 10 years later, as we put our feet to the ground and walked to Albany, it still has yet to be fulfilled. And it makes me wonder why. Why is it that our state is making a choice in this world of choice to not fully fund the schools that would help and support black, brown, and poor children across the state? It doesn't make sense. And so I've been in this fight from the very beginning around CFE. And I brought my 15-year-old son with me. He's in 11th grade, Eagle Academy for Young Men in Brooklyn. And at first, I was like, no, you're going to miss too much school. And then I realized, well, one, there are a lot of holidays that fall, and so you won't miss too many. But more importantly, what better way? Like, this is the best learning experience he's ever going to get. Mm-hmm. And he's been leading the way the whole time. He's been at the front of the line of 126 miles that we've walked in a, a 15-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. Who was six when I first took this journey to Albany with my day 10 and 11-year-old. And would have never thought back then in 2006 that we would still be here in 2016, a decade later, a decade of opportunities denied and dreams denied for our children, fighting for this money. It's insane. It's criminal. It's immoral. But it's not going to stop us. Right? Like We're there. Tomorrow, October 11th, the goal is to meet with the governor. Tell us how. Tell us why. You're refusing. You're making the choice to not fund the most immediate children in this state. Karan, you have really been instrumental in connecting issues of public education and access to education and school discipline reform, police in schools, things that have really originated from a movement of racial justice in schools with broader issues of racial injustice and bigger than, I think, what people think of as the traditional versus public charter school debate. What are the issues that are really front and center for you in your advocacy work right now? For those, again, and I want to make sure that, you know, when we think about the Eros work, the alliance, we want to acknowledge that, you know, the alliance is a 
sort of the child, if you will, of the kind of organizing that had been occurring long before this this particular formation existed. And what is particularly powerful about the alliance is that it, it brings together the concerns, the issues, the foremost issues of the key constituencies when we think about strong schools and strong communities, right? Students, parents, and educators. And so for us, the issues at the forefront for the work that we're doing is around Right. One, to to sort of pull on what Zakia said, demanding the kind of investment that we know that it takes to make strong schools and strong communities. Mm -hmm. All across this country, we bear witness to what happens when we invest in schools. When we go into suburban, white, wealthier communities, we see evidence of those schools. And so the first piece for us is saying that we must invest and we must invest billions of dollars in our public education system. Mm -hmm. The second piece or another piece of our work is saying that as we invest in our public schools and in community schools, we must also hold the charter industry accountable. In fact, we should really be going away from the expansion of the charter industry and toward a deeper and more robust investment in our public education system. The third piece for us is, is lifting up Right, the need that we, we have to have curriculum that is relevant and engaging mm-hmm. for both our educators and our students to actually engage in the learning process. We are also clear we need positive discipline that looks like restorative justice and not the kind of suspension and push out that are far too rampant. And then we need more learning and less testing. Like th- those are the prongs of our agenda. Billy, how are you at Alliance for Quality Education? How are you connecting the you know nation's racial illness with some of the policies that you're pushing for? Well, you know, if we look at this country's history, this is a country where it used to be illegal in large parts of the country for black children or black adults to even learn how to read. You know, and then we had a time when we said, well, we can have separate education, segregated education, and there was this sort of concept of separate and equal. And then we determined that separate education was inherently unequal. Yet we still are all these, you know, decades and decades later since the Brown versus Board of Education decision, and we still have unequal education and often separate education. And there's a lot of angles at which we come at this issue from uh, the racism that's in our society, which is also part of the system of our schools. And that is the main issue we're walking about right now, which is funding, huge inequality, and funding, which leads to huge inequality in educational opportunities, means that black and brown students are less likely to have music and arts and dance placement courses, career and technical education. They have less likely to have access to those types of educational opportunities. But there's other layers, too, in terms of how the education policy reinforces the systemic racism that is uh, part of America, mm-hmm. such as the whole way that we're using high-stakes testing. The problem is not testing unto itself. When I was a kid, we had tests. Mm-hmm. Everyone agrees that testing has a role in schools. The problem is how we use it. And we use it for inappropriate things that actually pervert the educational process. So one of the things it's used for is to weed out schools, teachers, to sort of rank them and, and say, well, this is a failing school. Mm-hmm. And we're going to punish that school. Well, this is a policy that has a usually disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. In fact, here in New York, 
the governor labeled a bunch of schools as failing schools, uh, which we found objectionable, that label to begin with. Mm -hmm. But all of those schools were concentrated in communities that are heavily black and Latino and poor. This is all a result of standardized testing. That's how the schools are labeled, based on the outcomes of the standardized test. So those schools are then targeted for interventions that are damaging, like closing, like a state takeover, like turning them into a privately run, publicly funded charter school. These are the types of interventions that come out of standardized testing that are overwhelmingly targeted to black and brown communities. And this is simply unacceptable. And it's really a part of a whole strategy of corporate-style education because they use the standardized testing to create a bottom line, just like a Wall Street balance sheet as a bottom line. But the bottom line is the test score in this case. Mm -hmm. And it's used in ways that are not supportive of quality education. Zakia, I've heard all of you mention teachers today. And I think a lot of people, when they think about the movement activity happening, especially around schools and public education, wouldn't necessarily see teachers as part of that movement activity. How are teachers partnering with you, with young people, with parents in this work? You know, along these 16 years of me being engaged and learning what organizing is and you know, teachers for me from day one have been our strongest ally in the struggle. They understand what it means to teach in under-resourced classes and how difficult it is. They understand what it feels like and what it means for young people to have to come to school and not receive art and music. A lot of the things that they received or that they can't offer or provide for young people advanced placement courses or all the things that are being cut. And so who better than to form an alliance with than educators, right? That trifecta works for school for children to be effective in the classroom, and it absolutely works around advocacy as well. And along the, along the years, personally, having eight children, like to this day, I still have relationships with teachers, and they share the story about what they're experiencing and how much more money they're pulling out of pocket to provide basic stuff for students, that doesn't make any sense, right? Um, and they are also, they bear the brunt of this over-testing and over-reliance on standardized testing, right? Yeah. Because it becomes, you can't do the work, so you don't need to be there. It becomes your failure. Uh, it becomes your parents, your committee is a failure. Getting rid of that failure language mm-hmm. that does nothing is about addressing the fact that high stakes of testing is doing nothing to support and help our children be successful in life. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely raising up the fact that money is connected to it, and there's big money connected to it. Them not surviving, right? The testing companies make a ton of money, and teachers want to teach. We've sucked the love of teaching and learning out of the classroom over the last however many years because we want to focus on high stakes. Well, who stakes for, for black and brown kids and poor children? Stakes? You want to talk to us and parents about high stakes? Mm-hmm. Like, give me a break. I'm so frustrated with the lack of conversations about equitably funded schools, mm-hmm. about really providing assessments for students, right, so that parents and everyone else or family members can help push their students in the right direction as opposed to beating them over the head because they didn't get 
a high score and a high stakes test, which is one test out of 180 days or plus days, yeah. you know, that they're in school their whole year. Can you imagine? Their whole year based on the test? It's ridiculous. And one last thing, the folks, the hedge funders, the rich people who are pushing back, who are using their money to buy our democracy, to try to shut out voices as parents and community members, who spew their rhetoric and propaganda, right, who use the words that we know are cold words to describe black and brown children, would never, ever allow their child to be judged based on one test. They would never allow their child to be a taught by teachers with six weeks experience. They would never allow their child to not have access to art, music, and dozens of sports teams. Never. So why is it okay for black and brown kids to experience the kind of education they're pushing when they don't even want it for their own children? That inequity that you're describing, Zakia, really resides, it resides at the local level. Karan, you can really attest to the ripple effects of local actions, local protests, the ripple effects to other locations, and then into national conversation. What do those ripple effects look like? How does that actually manifest? And why is it important to actually build that, that local base of activity? In February, when we organized the first set of national walk-ins, we had about 40 cities participate. The energy around those walk-ins were really high, and folks said, let's do this again, and let's try to double the number. And so in May, we had about 80-plus cities participate. Our national walk-ins that we had October 6th, just about a week ago, we had 238 cities right, that signed up and organized walk-ins to school across the country, 2,000 schools. The result of that for that day was, right, a trend in a public education as trending on Twitter, right, Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine, New York Times, Washington Post, lifting up the story of, you know, the vice president or candidates showing up at an event in Philadelphia, right? So there's a way in which when folks begin to take action locally, and then connect those actions to a national narrative Mm -hmm. that people begin to pay attention. And we see that beginning to happen. And as we go into next year, our goal is to grow these national days of action, right? So that in every city, in every neighborhood, people are walking in and not just walking in because our work is not just tactical, that is doing walking, but it reflects what is happening in San Francisco, that let's take an action together. Mm -hmm. So let us be committed to building something that looks like AQE in New York, right, that can run campaigns and win at the city and state levels. Neva, what have you seen that has worked for you in your local place that's come from the outside, that's come from another place, that's come from a national perspective that has worked to bring about change there in San Francisco or Oakland? We are very clear while we have some great uh, minds that sometimes we do need to learn from other folks. So we try to do a lot of learning exchanges, whether on a staff level or a member level. So our Solutions Not Suspensions campaign, we narrowed that from what L.A. did and adapted it to um, how it could fit San Francisco and then supported how it would be best fit in Oakland, right? Mm -hmm. Nationally, one of the other things that we've taken, you know, based on, What New York was able to do um, a few years ago, 
with Eric Zachary as an example, um, as part of AFT and try to combine community organizations working with teachers union has been really helpful for us. When I started at Coleman five years ago, we had a very tense relationship with the teachers union. Many of our campaigns in the past were not supported by the teachers union, even though they were definitely going to impact black and brown students. It was going to deal with the achievement gap and equity, being able to support ethnic studies and things of that nature. We were not on the same page when we started to close the gap in working with Dr. Justice at CIU and UESF, being able to change some of the dynamics of that, you know, being able to have more honest conversations about we're not always going to agree, but how do we struggle through when we do have disagreements? And most importantly, what can we agree upon? When we moved the Solutions Not Suspicious campaign, as an example, our whole goal was to neutralize the teachers union. That's it. Mm-hmm. We didn't need the support. We didn't think we could get their support. And with the night of the vote at the last hour, they got up and supported it. Months after that, when I was on a call with Dr. Justice, a Black Lives Matter working group, it was the teachers unions who pushed and said, we can't be talking about Black lives unless we're talking about the disproportionate amount of Black boys being suspended. Mm-hmm. And from there, the relationship completely changed. And the work that we're doing now is really focused on how do we involve teachers, youth, and parents being able to pilot at particular schools to make sure that PDIS, the trauma-informed education, is truly happening from the campaign that we won. Just because we passed the policy doesn't mean they do anything with it, right? And so that's really some of the things that we've been able to pull from um, national folks and being able to, how do we communicate locally? Because we all want the best interest, for the most part, of improving the lives of our young people, Mm -hmm. right? And that piece that Zaki is talking about is clear. We're part of a system that is designed actually not to let all children succeed, Mm -hmm. right? And most of those children not succeeding look like me and look like my youth and my parents. They're black and brown folks. And being able to tell a kindergarten parent that I can't promise you that you're going to have a good education for your child Mm. your entire 13 years or that they're going to graduate is problematic, Mm -hmm. right? It's something that should be a national crisis, not just for those of us that are working on it, but being able to say this is something that is deplorable, that every focus should be focused on this. Policies need to be upturned. Funding needs to be adequated. The money that they're walking for, it's ridiculous that they have to walk for that. Give us the money that we need to to make sure that we're ensuring the proper education for all of our children. And so I'm thankful for the folks in New York. I'm thankful for the folks in Chicago, Miami, Philly, D.C., where we can continue to learn from each other while we fight for our families, while we fight for our community. That's fantastic. Billy, when I think about the walk-ins and the ed walk, of course, I think about the sit-ins and the marches of the 40s, 50s, 60s that ultimately brought about the death of the old Jim Crow and brought about federal legislation in the form of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for example, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, things that weren't necessarily on the radar of the things for which folks were dreaming of. So as you are literally walking right now for justice, 
What are your biggest dreams for the long-term possibilities of this work? That's a great question. And the, the truth is that I feel as if we are carrying on the, the unfinished work of the civil rights and black liberation movements and all the other movements that have, have gone before. That, you know, tremendous progress was made because of organizing and struggle. People put their lives and their bodies on the line and their souls on the line. And we need that now. We all need that now. There's a lot of hopeful things happening when we look around this country because we cannot just look at education in a vacuum. The lack of education, the lack of quality education is not something that happens in a vacuum. There's a direct connect between the, the denial of quality education based on race, language, and income, and the, the policing policies we see mm-hmm. in our communities, the housing and jobs situation uh, that we have in this country, the huge economic inequality in our economy is reflected in our schools. So we need a mass movement. And on education, there are a lot of feet on the ground. Yeah, we're walking here today and this week, but there are a lot of feet on the ground across the country. As Diva said, there are people all over the country. We're in this fight together. We need a dramatic change. We need issues that have never been addressed by this country when it comes to education to finally be addressed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this whole mythology it's popular in some circles that money doesn't matter in our schools. That's just plain silly. We walked through some communities on our way that were very wealthy, and you saw these beautiful school buildings. And I'm quite certain that nobody in those communities was confused about whether money mattered or not. <laughs> when they say money doesn't matter, they're talking about poor kids. They're talking about black and brown kids. They're saying we don't want to spend the money. That's mm-hmm. what they're really saying. And it's part of a larger right-wing political agenda. Is attacking our communities and schools and education. We need a strong, progressive education movement that's going to transform that. That's one of the optimistic things about Eros, the Alliance to Reclaim Our Schools, because there we're coming together around a common agenda for community schools to end the school to prison pipeline and for fair and equitable funding. You know, Karan, on one hand, there's a need certainly for incremental change for compromises along the way to get ultimately to that, you know, that shining Civil Rights Act of 2017. On the other hand, I mean, we're talking about the humanity of children, of young people, of people in communities of color. The Yale study that was released recently that demonstrates that preschool teachers, children as young as two and three and four years old, already carry these implicit biases that cause them to hyper-police Black boys, especially in the classroom. And so we're, we're talking about the humanity of children that is really at stake. And so we need wholesale movement quickly. How do you balance those two things? On the one hand, incremental change. On the other, you know, the need for large-scale something right now. How do you balance that in your work? So I think for us, we start with that big picture and demanding the kind of sweeping structural changes that we know is possible. Here's the thing I tell people, I have not in this country seen the evidence that the stuff that we're demanding, the stuff that Billy articulated is outside of the reach of our resources or our capacity. Mm-hmm. I actually think it might be a false dichotomy, right? Because people say, 
oh, that's too big. We must achieve it incrementally. And the reality is when polled mm-hmm. by the majority of people in this country say, right, we need quality public education right, that delivers good curriculum by qualified teachers where we invest in our young people and set them up for a bright future. When polled, right, the majority of people in this country say we need jobs that pay a decent wage that allow parents to work but also have time to be home with children. So we're actually not in the minority here. We are not advancing a minority issue. We are actually well within right, the ranks of the majority of people in this country who say public education should be a right and should be delivered in ways that reflect our deep commitment to those communities and to our children. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. I push back against the dichotomy that is one or the other. And then we accept that as strategists, as campaigners, there are things that we may not be able to win. We, we compromise, we compromise in the direction of our values and we compromise in ways that allow us to move our agenda for the next fight. And so for me, that's how we approach compromise. But for us, we start with demanding that what we lack is not resources. We lack the political will. And that the first job for us is to bend the political will in our direction. Mm-hmm. And we do that by not accepting the notion that the things we're asking for is outside, rests outside of the realm of possibility. Yeah. Like we do not believe that and we do not think right that what folks are doing in New York by saying give us the money that we won, we don't think that's unreasonable. We don't think that somehow, oh my God, right? We think that that is well within the capacity of the state of New York and this yes. country in general to invest in our children in that way. Neva, for someone listening who says, you know, this sounds very compelling. I have no experience whatsoever in education justice, advocacy, or organizing, or protest. What do you say to them about how to be involved and aware of what's happening in their neighborhood? So there's a couple layers, right? So I am in the mindset that if you are those that are impacted directly, so our Black and Brown families and our youth, that you should be taking leadership and leading. And from um, our other folks that, you know, you should be in this fight and struggle with us and being trained up. And so you may not always be the one being on the mic at the press or the protest, but you are definitely somebody that is rolling up your sleeves and being involved and that we need all skill set. So we need folks that can document and do communication to those that like to write and that are geeky and do reports and research to those that are artists and cultural folks and those that are policy wants. We need everyone. And then those that don't even know what their skill set is. Mm-hmm. But to get to your local organization, to your community, there, and especially in our major cities, there is an organization like Holman. If not, there may be somewhere in the region. I mean, if you need some help, you're welcome to give myself a call at Coleman Advocates. You can email me at nwalker at Coleman Advocates. I do believe that in order to get a better education, in order for us to fight the bureaucracy of the system and the capitalist state that we have, in order for us to be truly free, it's really going to take more of the masses being involved. And so many of our families that are impacted don't know that we're talking to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you actually may be doing well by your child academically may be doing well. However, fighting for our own child, a child 
is not going to solve all of the ills of our community. That child's going to grow up and be around, if they haven't already, around other family members or other community members that aren't having the same academic outcome as your baby. Mm-hmm. All of the babies are our responsibility, not just the ones that we are responsible financially to take care of. And so just, you know, stand up, you know, start be willing to be open-minded around what is possible around all of this work and then get involved. Zakia, you know, stories are really important to change hearts and minds. So do you have a story that you want to share with our audience about the power of youth voice, of parent voice, and really bringing about systemic change? You know, 15 years ago, I think I was like many parents, how parents get involved is through their parents' association or something personal, which makes sense, right? What is my child? How is my child being affected? And I get that because I was a parent. And while I was fortunate that it wasn't that there was anything bad that was affecting my child, I didn't have to deal with with, with suspensions, no issues per se, of the things I'm working with now. But what it did is open my eyes to the inequities, the mass inequities that were happening because... I, you know, I call it, that was the time when my rose-colored glasses were taken off because my children had opportunities, science labs, and all these great things, foreign language, and I just thought that every child had. And when I realized that literally a 15-minute, 20-minute bus ride away in the heart of East New York or Brownsville, Brooklyn, that historically for decades, those schools have been underfunded. Mm-hmm. And then what I also realized about being involved and being a parent leader with the College for Educational Justice, when I visited schools, in, say, Manhattan, predominantly white schools, and you got a taste, or you went, or you visited schools in Worcester, Massachusetts, and you got a taste of what an education could look like. Mm-hmm. And after that, there was no turning back, because the question always comes back to, then why aren't our children receiving this? At the same time, I realized, holy is the power of youth organizing, uh, working with organizations like the Urban Youth Collaborative, and the Alliance for Educational Justice, and the list goes on and on. I've seen young people who started off as 14-year-olds in high school talking about gentrification mm. and immigration and college access. I don't want now to be organizers themselves, right, and have children themselves reclaim that generation or two that we missed years ago. And I've seen it firsthand in the power of these young people who there's no doubt in my mind as they grow up and they have more ditch have children that those young men, brown and Latino men, those young women will be the next parent teacher association leaders. And if they thought we are currently like radical and you they ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> um so I swear by the power of youth voice. They're fearless, they're amazing. But I swear by the power of us connecting and joined at the hip mm-hmm. in collaboration, not parents, more important the youth, not youth more important for parents, but us connected arm in arm. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And I know that's how change happens. I am dedicated. I am committed. Because I know those young people are mm-hmm. to seeing freedom and liberation. And if we're going to do that, this is education and justice for the sake of what? It's for that. It's for them to be free. Experience what that looks like. Experience what that feels like. Experience how they live that. And we don't talk about that in school. We don't talk about that. All we constantly have to deal with here, as we walk, 150 miles, people have left their children, have left their husband and wives, 
for 10 days to get something that was 10 years old. I forgot Chase old. Court decision to fund schools to black, brown, and poor children. 10 years later, we still have yet to see that fulfilled. There's something that's wrong with that. And as we walk in New York State, we have a governor who says, Central spokesperson, not to say this is a publicity stunt. When I see parents with blisters on top of blisters on their feet, falling and tripping and getting back up and walking, sore legs and that, like everything, this is not a publicity stunt. But it is by the governor because it's black and brown folks, their parents standing up for their children. It's not okay, though. But the power in the organizing is something I truly believe in. And I just say, you know, in your faith, 50% of children live in poverty. As someone mentioned it before, 50% of children had a cold, it would be a state emergency. Hmm. Why is it not? Zakia and Billy, thank you so much for joining us. Literally walking to Albany as they talk with us today. You all be safe out there. We are walking with you in spirit. Thank you for what you are doing. Billy and Zakia, are you recording this, the Ed Walk? How can folks follow what you're doing? Absolutely. So you can follow the hashtag Ed Walk. We also have bikers who have been riding from Buffalo. And we're going to meet with them, I think, either tonight or tomorrow. And we're going to kind of walk, ride together. They're doing about 70 miles a day. So follow the hashtag EdWalk. You can follow us on Twitter and social media. You can go to the AQE website, which is aqeny.org. We're raising funds for this walk still. Anything you can give will help us. We're going through a lot of Moleskine and Vaseline and Epsom salt and all that stuff. <laughs> Whatever you can give will help. If you go to the AQE website, you'll find a CrowdRise page. Please give, give, give. More importantly, or equally as important, send those words of support and encouragement to keep us going on the road. And if you're from New York and you're listening, call the governor and tell him to fund this 10-year-old decade past due. We're coming to collect our check. Tell him to fund CFE. And it's not just the governor, it's the New York State Senate and the IDC majority to tell them all, fund schools. Enough is enough. Stop playing games. And Neva, how can folks find Coleman Advocates online? www.colemanadvocates.org. We're also on Twitter at ColemanSF1 and definitely on Facebook as Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth. And just a real quick, because Zakia plugged in AEJ. Please check out them, too. They do a lot. Um, we're part of the Alliance for Educational Justice, where we're able to plug into our a national network of youth organizing across the country. They, too, Allison, are on Twitter. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, okay. also want to plug Journey for Justice Alliance, so J4J underscore USA mm-hmm. as well. So people should follow all those. Thank you. And that's J, the number 4J underscore USA. And Karan, how can people find the Alliance to Reclaim Our Schools online? Um, Our website is reclaimourschools.org. Our hashtag is hashtag reclaimourschools. Our Twitter is at reclaimourschools. And schools is spelled S-P-H-L-F. And then we're also on Facebook. Thank all of you for being on Schoolhouse today. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I'm so excited by all of the work that is happening that you all are doing and really believe that we can win. So thank you so much for being here. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. 
Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful week.